storage unit for the spirit house. The father at dining room table, shades drawn, wobbly thrown. The daughters with their brown, shaky hands. A forest knot haunts the master closet among the clothes moths, felt wolverines. Daughter number one hiding behind a juniper bush, bright longies, wooden handgun in metal case. Daughter number two sleeps with a long broom next to her bed, mint chocolates under pillow, 5 a.m., the father drops a cold, wet towel on her face. Storage unit filled with boxes of LPs, Joni, Dylan, Carly. Back cover of Jimi Hendrix Experience. On two hits of acid, this will blow your brains out. Dusty military jackets, punishment belt, piles of lock boxes, missing keys, jars of Nescafe, VHS tapes of Burmese pop singers. Daughter number three listens to father's records in the den, altered music room, sits on the piano bench near the door, the father in armchair, Joni singing a case of you. Forest knot flutters above in air, smoky from Kent 100s. This poem is from Storage Unit for the Spirit House on Avidon. They check the car and check the phone. We don't know how many people are, how many people they arrest. We don't know how many people they get at night. But every day, every day, uh, have a missing people. right now uh, he went out from his house to buy something at the shop uh, at evening maybe 6 p.m. or 7 p.m. but he didn't come back that night his family was thought he might be he might be some friend house but after two days and three days uh, he was a combat, so his mother was so worried about him, so she called him, but the phone was ringing, uh, no one was handed to answer the phone. Every day, every day, a dying uh, a dead body was increased, and uh, rising people and uh, missing people are uh, upcoming increase in every day. 
we don't have weapon, uh, we don't have army to fight back. Every day we was scared. One day they come to arrest us. First time and where? Every day we worry about that. Before we start today's interview, please allow me a word or two about our podcast. Even as Myanmar plunges into a civil war because of the military's bloody coup, the international community and media organizations have all but turned their backs on the country and its people. But this humble platform is committed to staying the course. We conduct nuanced, long-form interviews with a variety of guests connected to Myanmar so our listeners can better understand the ongoing crisis. Thank you for choosing to spend the next couple of hours with us today. French um, journalist in Bangkok and I was also a media teacher in Myanmar before COVID when it was still possible to travel there. So um, when the coup happened on the 1st of February, um, some of my former students uh, reached out to me because um, they were they were now graduating journalists and um, all of them went into the streets to cover the um, protest, the anti-coup protest. And they publish picture and info. Some of them work for local media. Um, but they they ask me, uh, can we, uh, can you help us to give a, an international audience to to this event and this picture? So we founded a collective, which is called the Myanmar Project Collective, and it's a network of uh, of ten to twelve people across the country who were trained um, to professional media reporting, and who keep uh, sending um, picture, video, writing articles about precise local events uh, from from ten different states. Um, so then. Um, we have um, a team in Bangkok and uh, with Nadia Uben, who is in the, um, in the Netherlands uh, and with, with uh, um, NGO Human Rights in the Picture. Um, we decided to create a platform with the photographer from the Myanmar Project Collective as well as other creators. So this is filmmaker and artist. So for the moment, we have um, a dozen of photographers and then one filmmaker who filmed for four to five months inside Myanmar in different places and um, who will pro 
produce and provide a, a long, long documentary very soon with this footage. Uh, so this platform is also for, for him to show his work. Um, and then we have an artist. So we have some graphic designer or artist who can also use this, uh, this platform to show their work. So the platform has, has two goals, is to, um, to build a professional a website where all of the um, creators have their own profile, their own page, so it can be used uh, for them for, for internship, for work opportunities, for CV. Um, it's, a, it's a memory of the work, of the best work that we have crafted, that we have edited, that we have published. And then the other, the other side is there is a donation page uh, because we have several projects. So all the publication we managed to, um, to sell, to publish in, uh, all the money is, um, is sent back to, to the authors in Myanmar. And this donation page on the website is a, is a way to continue our, um, our support program, uh, who goes from uh, DPN subscription to daily English online lesson, um, and to, to cash donation, to buy material, uh, to, to renew passport, to everything that's needed for them to be able to, to work in safety, uh, some cybersecurity training also. Um, yeah, and, and third, obviously, uh, it's also to keep the light on, on what's happening in Myanmar, because we know that now it's almost a year, uh, and, uh, and, uh, International interest has dropped a lot. You can see it in the algorithm, in the news uh, feature about the country. Um, we had an exhibition also in Bangkok with some of the pictures of the collective um, about women, especially about the women who were on the front line in protest all across the country. And um, quite a lot of, uh, of people came, and Thai people, and, and they came and they said we didn't even know that uh, there were still uh, dramatic events uh, happening in, in Myanmar. This was in December. So really after, after eight, ten months, um, most people had dropped of the events. Now it's a bit uh, in Thailand media again because it's at the door of, of, of Thailand in the sense that uh, thousands of uh, refugees or villagers um, are trying to cross to Thailand to go in re refugee camps here because the, the assaults are so violent and, and intense on the other side in Karenikaya, Karen State. Um, but I mean, in the regional international um, focus, it has slowed down a, a lot. So we still want to provide um, updated, um, checked quality local information about what's happening there. Yeah, so that's the idea. So that's, uh, that's, that's certainly quite a lot of, uh, of things that you're, you're taking on for quite a small team, mm. actually. It's oh, a yeah. very impressive output. Um, the first question, obviously, is yes, it's, uh, it's excellent that we're giving a platform to these, uh, to these talented journalists and to these artists and people who are helping to bring this information. But is there a risk to their safety by having all of this anti-coup, anti-military content hosted on a on a public website. Mm. So the um, there is no name and there is no uh, exact places um, in the in the credit. So each page, each photographer has a has a pseudonym. So it's like a code name, so they can still find their work under this page, but the. 
there is no name, there is no metadata on the picture, and uh, we gave the, the township for most of them. You know, when it's in a small village, we, we don't give the name of the village, which we put simply the township. Um, half of, at least, at least, let's say half of the team is not um, at the place anymore of hometown living, um, because most of the picture we have. Uh, for uh, until end of March, maybe uh, beginning of April max, because as you know, the, the crackdown has intensified so much from the end of March that um, that it became so dangerous and, and impossible for mass protest. Uh, so the uh, the journalists don't go out in the streets anymore uh, because you also know that uh, some journalists have been arrested while covering, and this is obviously something we we really never want to to happen. So the the street protests are not covered anymore. Um, most of them are not in the place of hometown anymore; they are hiding somewhere else, and there is not much way you can. Um, you can make a connection between the work on or, or themselves because the the name is not out. So for sure, it's it's a big concern. And now we have moved to to let's say uh, investigative reporting, uh, much less in the um, in the video content or picture uh, because it's so it's so dangerous to get out with a camera and take a picture. So now it's simply. Um, kind of underground work of casual interviews uh, while pretending not to not to do it and this is how we gather information now so in the in the very close surroundings um, they report without um, without being open about it uh, but mostly text and info this is what we can do at the moment um, we have some of the team who is able now to send um, a picture of what's happening on the Taimir border, uh, which is a bit uh, easier because uh, quite a lot of pockets of the are not controlled by the military or on the Thai side. It's it's possible now to to see the IDP camps and to visit there. So um, as much as we 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 really have to evolve our report uh, to make our reporting evolve according to the to the security situation. So some things are really not possible anymore, covering street protest. But other things are still possible. You can still inquire what's happening to the unions in a factory, what's happening at the trade. Um, um, the checkpoint at the for trade at the border between Chinstead and China. There is still there is still thing we can know, um, but it's the the shape of it that has to change um, because of, of safety. Yeah, so um, we all uh, they were also enroll all of them in a in a cyber security as well as on the ground safety training uh, right after the um, the coup. They were in a session. Um, so this program has been going on for them, and uh, yes, we we make um, we change every every week, every two weeks, every month the the strategy of reporting uh, to make sure that uh, no one knows who they are and where it comes from. Uh, yeah, and uh, and I think that's very it's very important to emphasize this because, oh, yeah. as you said, it, it has gotten much more difficult. There have been a lot of crackdowns we saw uh, towards the end of last year during the silent strike, two reporters, uh, as you know, were arrested and one of them unfortunately yes. died in custody not long after yes. that. 
um, and it's almost certain that the that the other reporter, uh, the the cameraman, uh, was tortured by by security yes. forces. So the 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 risk to people getting this information is incredibly high. Mm, mm, but mm, mm. Um, but we desperately desperately need need to get this information. Yeah. And I want to circle around. You you mentioned we're getting information about things like trade over the borders, checkpoints, mm. uh, what's going on in factories. What sort of uh, value does this sort of, let, let's call it indirect information, have to the international audience? What can we learn about the situation from this sort of information? Mm, I think it's very useful to... Um, to be aware of what is the daily life for people and what is the socio-economic impact of the of the coup, but also all of the global exodus of uh, of international companies from Myanmar, um, who for sure have brought a lot of uh, work opportunities and developments uh, among other issue but uh, what what does it do when when after a decade of um, liberalization reforms will allow all this company to come in 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 terms of uh, um, uh, textile but telecommunication or all, all these aspects of life uh, who have been greatly um, developed um, since 10 years and suddenly it's in a standstill so we wanted to know what is the reality of it is is really everything in a standstill economically and if it is uh, how do people um, cope with it uh, can they cope with it and if uh, and once you know this you also know how to help better because I think there is, um, even if the interest has uh, gone down for Myanmar, I think there are still people who would like to know, would like to help uh, people. But if you don't uh, know exactly what the situation, uh, your support might be misplaced, actually, because you don't know where actually... Um, where to send it, how to send it, and where it gets, and uh, where, where, what are the most needs, the main needs. Um, and yeah, I think detailed information about the impact of the coup on, on the majority of, um, of people in Myanmar is of great value to see... Um, how how can can NGO or companies contribute to a bit soften the um, the the intensity of the of the shock that has been done to the Myanmar society? And um, if yeah, we if if you know that some uh, companies uh, have stopped production, have stopped, we 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 know actually that some. Um, uh, factories have, have to completely stop simply because uh, most of the staff um, worked out as CDM um, and this has a, a, a strong, strong impact on a local level when you have one giant factory where you have 1,000 people and you have 800 people who worked out, it has a certain impact um, and um, yeah, I, I think if you if you know what's the situation for people, you also know how to um, to yeah to support them better. And this is the big. Uh, it was really emphasized in the case of, of Telenor, now who choose to um, 
to leave the country because it said it couldn't operate under the new rules of uh, of the of the SAC that they put on the telecommunication operator, which is totally receivable as a as an argument. But then, uh, what do you do with all the um, the user data that are left um, and? Uh, and also, they needed to be aware that Telenor was really the, the choice, the first choice for, for activists even before the coup, because it was deemed as the most transparent. And um, so now you have really people freaking out, and they are pushed to buy Mitel and MPT uh, SIM card and data um, package, because uh, they are the only one who have not been... Um, uh, uh, really um, put up the price, so... Um, Telenor and, and Oredo and most of the operators um, had to put up the price uh, to make loss for the profit. Um, and Mitel decided not to, to, even to make discounts, because, as you know, it's it's military-owned. So, so people are saying, we are pushed. They make everything they can, so we have to buy the products. We have to support the companies. Uh, and this is what happened when you when you go out of a, of a country very hastily, uh, without looking behind of the of the impact of, of all of this. So every every company that was in Myanmar has a, has a responsibility now because people uh, were somehow dependent of the product and had more, more trust in in their product um, than the military on product. Uh, so there is still a very strong um, movement of boycotts against uh, military-owned company, be it telecom, be it beer, be it cement, uh, be it uh, uh, supermarket, uh, or as it goes um, wide and far. Um, so, so people are in a situation where they have to to boycott the, the products that are linked to the military, but at the same time, it became the, the only one available because of the disruption in trade and, and this exodus of international companies. So, yeah, I, I think that is very valuable for for policy making um, to know this these things, how what people are subjected to and what they have to do and how they have to cope and. And uh, I would I would also say that uh, our findings show that uh, the main support network for people right now is still the local community, uh, be it religious or non-religious. But at the moment, it's it's yeah, it's the temple, it's the churches, it's the local CEO, it's the it's the ethnic group who provide for their own people um, because the the. Um, International agency, um, same with the companies, they are, they are tied up, no? They locked up, they have to ask authorization for every single uh, bag of rice to be sent against across the country. Um, so we, we, we know why we're in this situation, uh, but the reality is that it's only this local network that makes sure that people still... Um, um, still have something to to eat, and they organize the transport uh, to go to refugee camps when it gets really uh, um, bad in the village. So they do all this work on the ground, and I think that knowing this is also helpful in the sense um, of then it become really obvious um, how to help and who to help uh, because they uh, they have the access, they have the language, they they, they know the needs. So. Um, if, if the people on the ground are identified, who still make a difference, um, I, 
I think it's very helpful for the international audience to know this. Um, it points you to the right direction. Um, I mean, there's so, so many things came up to me when you were saying that. So I think the the first thing I want to say for the benefit of people who have not been following uh, the situation as closely. Mm. Um, very recently, I think it was uh, possibly just this month, the military announced that there would be a 15% tax levied on yeah. all uh, data purchases, and I think yeah. a 20,000 jet um, yeah. tax on all SIM cards, Yeah. which, again, for people outside of the situation, 20,000 chat before the coup was a very good day's pay salary for, yeah. for a laborer or for a plumber or something like this. Mm. That's a lot of that is a lot of money. And it goes back to the way that things used to be prior to the relative liberalization after 2010 and 2015, where SIM cards were available, they were just an annual salaries cost, $3,000, mm, $5,000 mm, for a SIM mm, card. Mm. It's not control of, mm. of information. And I, I actually sympathize a lot with Telenor because... They tried. They genuinely did the best that they could. Mm. They gave forewarning throughout March and April and May of mm -hmm. uh, required shutdowns and blackouts. And they really did everything they could, but their, their hands are tied. They can't legally do anything to help the people anymore. And the military are driving them from the country very, uh, very deliberately. It's, it's a terrible situation. But uh, the other thing you raised was the, the textiles. Textile factories, for example. Mm. And I, I happened through a different direction. I happened to be doing a little bit of, of work on this a while ago. And it it raised, as you say, the people walked away because of CDM. Mm. Mm. And we heard from companies like H&M and a couple of other European companies who have reestablished uh, orders and, and connections to textile companies in Myanmar. And they're saying, well, we have to do this because if we don't put orders in, and we don't pay money to the factory, those people don't have a salary. And it's very difficult to explain. The people who left for CDM are not coming back. The people who get mm. that money are probably going to be connected to the military. They're mm. probably going to be cronies. They're probably going to be, you know, informants for the military, things like this. So I, I, it really does paint just how many different tiny ways we have to pay attention to to the mm. local ac uh, economic details in order to be ethical with our investment okay. and ethical with our, with our attempts to help. Because you are also correct when you say that that one factory might support a local community and that might be their source of, of dinner. Um, it's very tempting to say, oh, I have to give money to this factory because it will support this village. It may mm. support the village or it may support the military. Oh, it's yeah, very yeah. difficult. Yeah, to, yeah. to research. Um, and uh, it's, um, I think it's important not to put um, a judgment. I, I know that uh, boycotting or not uh, production in Myanmar was a very heated debate, and um, I, I don't think it's my role to give any uh, opinion on this, but uh, stating at least the fact and not judging. Um, individual choices because uh, you have money okay so most a lot of people have worked out because as we know the factories from Yangon are the pockets of unionization 
in in Myanmar before the coup. Um, only only a, a very small percentage, a percent of uh, of the Myanmar workers actually were unionized. Uh, it was made possible. Uh, with the liberalization reform to make a union, finally. Uh, but in reality, um, it's, it's mostly happened in the, in the textile factory, um, in Lentaria, uh, around Yangdong. Um, so it's, it, it made um, a great difference in the bargaining power. And now with the coup, uh, most of the union, all of the union leaders have been fired or didn't go back to, to work because they knew that they were on the front line and, and would be arrested. Uh, so we, we basically have a situation where there is no unions anymore. Um, and uh, people who went back after maybe some people went back now to the factory, maybe after five, six, seven, eight months, big simply by pure uh, um, desperation, but uh, we have to, to see that uh, they work under conditions when nothing is guaranteed for them anymore, and the only thing that pushed them to go back is, is, is pure desperation. So um, there you, you, we could argue that uh, the other solution, instead of having uh, people having to go back in a very unsafe uh, place with wage cut, huh, because they use COVID and coup to cut the wage also, and the lack of unions to cut the wage, to cut social benefit that we hardly won in the last decade. So, um, so they, are, yeah, they are basically forced um, to go back to very illegal and unsafe condition or there is nothing else in some parts of, of, uh, of the country if they don't get um, donation as CDM workers. And as we know, the, the needs are much greater um, than what's coming in the country in terms of donation, even if the Myanmar diaspora is making a incredible concerted efforts uh, to provide every every month, it's um, yeah, it's it's thousand millions of people who need uh, who need a monthly wage. Um, and there, uh, I guess the 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 idea would be to support this this former employees for the companies maybe in um in a, in another way and not inside the the factory. What what was interesting is we met uh, we interviewed. Um, a former factory worker, a woman uh, in Yangon, and uh, she chose to not work uh, under the military regime anymore. And then she actually turned into um, a researcher for a small uh, CSO NGO uh, on worker working conditions. So actually this whole terrible event can also be a way to to finally make the right decision and, and empower people so she became a, a researcher on the working condition in the industrial sector uh, which is um a incredible development um so um, I, I wouldn't look at it yeah i think looking at it black and white will will put two parts uh, the two sides in in the in the wall, obviously there is no um, um, the the situation is so is so rotten that it's it's locked up. No, if you if you stop every investment in Myanmar, there will be less uh, currency, less cash coming in. But anyway, as we know, uh, very few of this cash actually goes to the people, and if you don't invest. Um, 
actually you can invest in another way uh, in in empowering uh, this this people in a, in another way so supporting them in another sort of of work um, because um, yeah it, Myanmar had a very short kind of industrial revolution was a uh, way to move from mainly agricultural to to all this um, industrial zone um, but now they are in, in, in jeopardy because the country is, uh, is deemed too unsafe to be to be attractive for international investment. So, so what do we do with this with this dramatic period of time? And um, this is maybe a period of time where the work of empowering the um, the workers is still possible actually, and uh, would be a great use of this of this time. So all this parallel uh, administration in ethnic state, all the parallel schools, all the parallel clinics, um, there is way to support uh, civilian parallel uh, resistance um, groups um, to to give some some alternative to the to these people because the alternative of uh, you you sit at home and have nothing to eat or you go back to to a really um, terrible uh, um, job not 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 the job really but the condition very unsafe uh, condition is is not a choice and it's not fair to to bring only this uh, to to people so I think a, a third alternative way there is. Um, is the way yeah <laughs> i agree and i think it's a very it's one of those strange situations it's sort of a silver lining sort of case where we say well it's terrible that this is happening it's awful mm. but in these extreme circumstances people demonstrate a capacity that yes. they even did not know before that they had and we see now very rapid advances in people in let's say you know inter inter ethnic relations in Myanmar, we see rapid demands for social change, for mm. political change, mm. not just returning to the pre coup um, status quo, but actually moving the country forward positively into a genuine democracy and a genuinely transparent government, yeah. which they did not have before. Yeah. And uh, industrial relations are one of those. I mean, it, for those who were following it, even back then, I think it was the 14th of March, um, Handaya rose up and set fire to, to factories. And they, I think the military might have killed about 80 people yeah, just in, in that sure. one district yeah. of Yangon in one day. Yeah. Uh, horrendous, horrendous violence. But, you know, the, the factory workers have no choice. Food does not make itself, and and they have nowhere to go, and they have nothing that they can do. Um, so there, there is that small, small optimism that at the end of all of this, there can be genuine, genuine progress and genuine benefit for everyday people that would not have been achieved through the normal political process for many years or possibly even for decades. But yeah, because now they are pushed to a point of... Uh, of absolute uh, indignity, and um, there is no way back for a lot of, of, of those people who have choose to to walk out. Um, I t I talk to to quite diverse uh, social landscape now, from from teacher to to factory workers to. Uh, 
um, to agricultural workers and, and some of the ones who made the choice to um, to walk out said we will n- never go back and uh, we do, our kids were not in school for two years but we will find ways somehow to educate them outside of the um, of the system so the the online is is a big part of organizing um, people you have this myriad uh, of platform for um, for free education, for free universities, for to learn about cybersecurity, you have all this this channel on yeah on, on Telegram, on WhatsApp, on Facebook, and so um, I'm not saying that it's it's a satisfactory uh, replacement for quality uh, education or, and healthcare, mm. but I'm just saying that the will of people to build something parallel and the determination to not be part of the military system is still um, very strong and what we have seen is uh, is the main cop uh, i mean I don't say i'm not sure we can call this coping mechanism but how, how what do people do in in time of crisis actually is the same in every in every country at every crisis um when the, the teacher and the doctors uh, lost the lost the jobs, they were already not paid very well. Uh, what we saw is that most of them they moved to um, to sell things online, to buy at the market. So you go back to some kind of manual jobs, but on the free time they are still doing um, voluntary job to teach the kids around in the neighborhood to write program online that people can print and study themselves and um so what 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 we see is that really a sense of uh, yeah, of, of sacrifice that they sacrifice the the career and the status um for political ideology um and this has to be respected and how they live is with the small help of of local networks, as it was always the case in Myanmar, really, at any time of the country. People only can rely on their local communities for most of uh, their needs. Um, and, and, and building on this, and um, so um, I think all these parallel initiatives are the ones who need to be strengthened and, and supported uh, so people have a, yeah, have a third way to exist and to survive uh, um, this, uh, this time in, in economic dignity without losing the, um, uh, the right to, to express a political opinions. I mean, to, to gain, I think, the right to express a political opinion for, for the first time, really, yeah, I uh, mean, in the yes, country's history. CDM, CDM is, is the, an expression of, of politics, mm. no? So, so this and not putting your child at school, and it's, uh, it's, it's the choice of most people, and uh, it has to be respected, and if the international community wants to have any role in this at this time... Um, it has to um, to integrate into um, into this reality. Mm. Mm. And so, I'm I'm glad that you raised the point of the international community. And towards the beginning of the interview, you mentioned as well that we can see from the analytics, we can see from the statistics, uh, and also from from anecdotal evidence that people internationally are not aware of the ongoing crisis. Mm. And that could be as, uh, you know, something like Thailand, 
a neighboring country, mm. and not only a neighboring country, but a neighboring country that has taken a very large sudden influx of Myanmar refugees.、Mm. Uh, and yet, there are people in Thailand who do not、uh, recognize and are not aware of the scale of, of the, the crisis. Definitely in Europe, in North America, in Australia. Uh, the message is, is being lost. The interest in、yeah. the case is being lost. It was, it was fun to watch back in February, early March, and then after that it got boring. So the question is what do you think that we can do in order to increase awareness of this crisis internationally?、Hmm. Um, I think. In, in our small scale, we are reporters, so we do what we. We are trained and we can do, which is、uh, continue to report every day on、uh, collect documents every day what's happening in the, in the country, check it,、uh, write it, and,、um, and publish it in,、um, in English, but also in,、um, in Burmese. This will be the, the goal afterwards.、Um, so continue to. To write about it, at least for us who are in the region.、Um, but we do it, and then in the.、Uh, so it has to be in the media, and then I guess what's helping、uh, is when you make some kind of link with your own country. So、um, for, the, for the Americans, they, they could、uh, angle it on Chevron, and the French, we should do more about Total. And when you, when you put some kind of angle that your country has some kind of responsibility in.、Um, In the fate of another country,、uh, this will be helpful too.、Um, so, there was,、uh, I know that、uh, some countries in,、uh, in Europe, like, like Czech Republic, they are still very on the case、um, with Myanmar because the politicians, some of the politicians,、uh, mainly the mayor of, of Prague, is very supportive.、Um, Of the pro democracy movement in Myanmar. So I would say that it's,、um, it, it's, it's global now. It's, it's the media, it's when you have some politicians who have some ear to the problem.、Uh, we have some people at the Senate and the Parliament in France who are really committed、um, to, to keep、uh, Myanmar on the agenda. And they, we, they had a hearing with,、uh, with the national unity government.、Um, In Paris and、uh, in the US too, you have some people who really push. So、um, I think if the, if the media and the, and the politics、um, can have some kind of influence in their own country on the economic impact, because this is how it works if you say it enough in the newspaper and then the politician feels they have to do something、uh, with the Economic interests of the country which are not sitting well with the values、um, in some countries. So, yeah, we, we have the role to continue、uh, writing about it. The politics have the role to continue talking about it in parliament. And then、uh, the readership, and I, I would say at least, at least people、um, were so. I'd say infuse.、Uh, I mean, when, when, when there was the election in 2015, it was a, a big thing. There was a lot of,、uh, of interest in the country, there was a lot of investment, and I feel that people、uh, 
should continue um, to to inform themselves about what's happening there because it's not only when you can go there on holidays and make money by opening a factory that the country is interesting. It's like it's like now. It's really now in the real moment where people need to be supported. Um, uh, and I think it's it's important to to explain to people uh, that uh, um, support can go so far and uh, give them a clear idea of the situation in the country, and then according to what they want to to defend, they can only also um, contribute to very precise initiatives. So some people want to buy. Uh, uh, art from uh, from Burmese artists. Uh, some people want to support journalists. Some people want to support the union leaders according to what you you values are. So I think it's yeah it's our role to to tell people what's happening and uh, to give them the um, the path of uh, of being able to 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 help. And actually, there there was some. I, I feel it in. I, I'm telling you this uh, because uh, when when the railway workers, the railway workers in uh, in Yangon were one of the first to go in uh, in CDM pretty fully, uh, the train was stopped uh, pretty quickly because they were they walked out uh, a lot of them, and then the um, the railway workers union in France, who is very powerful as you might know, can stop the train. Uh, as they wish very um, regularly in France. So they actually made um, a video in support of the railway workers uh, from Yangon. So I, I thought that was really super interesting, the international solidarity beyond the elites also, no? beyond the, mm. the political and economic elites that, uh, that are so slow to move because bound by so much interest. But I really like the, the on the on the street uh, working class um, global solidarity that, that is also happening actually amongst the, the Thai and the Burmese youth. Um, that was really fascinating in, in Bangkok uh, just after the, the coup on the day after the Myanmar community organized a demonstration in front of the Myanmar embassy in Bangkok. And uh, Quite a lot of Thai people come uh, from the pro-democracy um, um, groups, student groups from Thailand. And then um, it was, I think it's the first time I saw or we saw, anyone saw uh, Thai and Myanmar people um, demonstrating together for, for democracy in the in the country. And maybe one, two months later, there was a big uh, protest uh, in the middle of Bangkok in front of the BACC uh, to, in support of the release of, of Thai student political prisoners. And actually, they, uh, they, bra- they brought pans and pots because they saw this from Myanmar. So we had pans and pots uh, hitting in the middle of Bangkok, and that was taken from the Myanmar people who also came to this. So, um, uh, yeah, I think this was really uh, fascinating, and it gives hope in the, as I said, the political and economic powers um, takes a lot to change, if ever. But on the streets, uh, people are um, aware of the of the shared uh, oppression and issue, and show some solidarity. So I thought that was really really interesting uh, to keep it uh, on the on the agenda. And and I agree, and it really sort of shows. I mean, especially the example with the railway workers. Mm. Um, shows that the, they can engage with an issue and they can be interested in the issue, uh, 
Yes. Um, I mean, I don't know whether it was politics or whether they just enjoy seeing people protesting on the railways. But uh, in any yeah. event... No, no, it was politics. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they were aware of the coup in Myanmar and they said, we really support you uh, in your in you, um, fight for, for freedom and workers' rights. And so... Yeah, I, I think if you explain to people how actually um, the situation in Myanmar and what people go through, um, anyone can relate in, in maybe one aspect, all aspects, and it's uh, okay, we have to explain to them these are workers and they have the same needs and you know, rights. And uh, I think when it puts in these words, uh, it's actually pretty effective. Um, okay. Mm. But then, but then, this for me just raises this question of, and and maybe you as a journalist would have a better insight. Why has normal reporting not succeeded? I mean, the images mm. that we have, you know, we have some truly horrendous and grotesque things that we've seen. Mm. Uh, you know, we we've seen the beatings, we've seen the murders, we've seen the bodies being yeah. burned, all yeah. of these sorts of things. Yeah. These are shocking, and and any normal person would look at that and say, well, this is horrendous, and we should intervene because this is not a political disagreement. These are crimes against humanity, very clear and very obvious crimes against humanity. This This is not about, well, do I support this party or do I support that party? This is far beyond that. Why has it not succeeded? Why have people not engaged with an issue where these atrocities are, are happening regularly and where we have the necessary footage and we have the necessary images to illustrate and to prove these atrocities? Why have people switched off? Mm. Um, I'm not sure if people have switched off or if it's the newspaper who have decided uh, to talk less about it. Uh, you know what I mean? Is it... Uh, is it people who are not interested or is it that media don't uh, buy uh, stories from Myanmar from freelancers anymore? Um, so this uh, this um, the, the two questions and the lack of interest um, from the media might be, as I said, in France, if you don't put Total in the story, it's really difficult for people to relate. You know, it's far. There is no, um, there is no connection really uh, beyond this economic interest uh, with the country. Uh, for the US, it's a bit different, but as as we know now, um, China and Russia are the main uh, economic partners of of Myanmar, um, and they have no interest of. Um, providing uh, this kind of information in their media. So you have the, the two most most important economic power partners with the with Myanmar who have absolutely no interest of having this um, this information out in the media. And then you have the let's say the rest of the world, but um, the rest of the international community um, was far less interest beyond the the pipeline, no? Total Chevron and and the Thai and the Korean one. Beyond this, um, if you have no no economic interest, there is no no political no interest, and then there is nothing in the media. Is is I see it a bit like this uh, too, because for for example, in France, when there was what we call the, the Arab Revolution. It was widely, widely covered for years in France, simply because France still has so much uh, influence um, 
there. So it's also what's in the newspaper. It's also dictated by uh, by the interest of of one country. And um, Myanmar now is yeah China Russia, and then you have India, who has also some interest in Myanmar, but who is so engulfed in his own <laughs> um, in his own issues of constant um, yeah, election and tension and, and division and uh, and they have uh, lost it uh, the influence on the on the countries I want so they have lost after the earthquake in Nepal China stepped in and India basically lost um, lost the influence on Nepal because they, they behaved uh, very badly no they put a boycott they didn't support properly. Uh, so Nepal turned away to to China and um, and India has shown some support before the coup also by sending vaccine and stuff to Myanmar, but there is no um, real um, commitment to to the to the pro democracy side. That's for sure from from the Modi administration. So. Um, yeah, what I what I want to say is like the three big powers I want, uh, Myanmar have no interest that this goes out, and the rest uh, um, has not enough influence anymore in Southeast Asia in general, but also in Myanmar to to push this in the agenda. So um, I think public opinion it's it's both ways huh? can shape politics, but also is shaped by by politics. So if you don't if you see it every day on the newspaper, you will care. But if you don't, uh, it will slip away. So I think at the end, it's it's choices that are be beyond us, no? <clears throat> hmm. Like this is the problem with the businesses influencing. Politics, politics influencing the newspaper, newspaper influencing the people. Yeah. It's, it's a cycle. It's a cycle. Yeah. And yeah. somehow yeah. we need to break that cycle. Yeah. Um, so do you find that the, the sort of content that you produce over at Visual Rebellion, do you find that that is, is picked up differently by audiences? Do they engage with it differently than traditional media? Um, so what uh, we, we do two different things in the sense of we put original content in this website, no? visualrebellion.org. So this is the, the selection of the best work in, uh, in image and videos of our collective. And then um, since February, we collaborate with um, publication for the moment, mainly Mediapart, uh, which is this French investigative um, newspaper I'm a correspondent for here. Um, and um, the idea was to write in collaboration with people inside the country uh, the day-to-day on-the-ground um, reality with their picture, their info, and uh, um, do we do it differently than the other? I would say that at least we do it, we try to do it on the long term uh, because also some of the, we are working and. Uh, so at the beginning, I told you we were doing this news kind of day-by-day day street protest, and then it becomes too dangerous. And, and it's not become irrelevant, but you said it also. How many dead bodies picture you're going to put and show? And and it's like at one point, it's, it's also about... Um, 
dignity and what narrative we choose uh, to talk about this war that is actually happening now. I, it's it's still important for sure to say that people have been um, extremely abused in terrific ways. Uh, but do we need to see the, um, the the dead kid every day? Does does will this increase the interest? Uh, I'm I'm not too sure. At the end, I think what will increase is that you explain people properly. Um, what what is the situation? But on a long term, so from June we moved on to investigative reporting, where we follow one issue. So it can be the cyber security, it can be the situation around the pipeline, it can be the union in factories, or as I told you, the um, what's happening at the Chinese border. So this this long lasting economic uh, impact. Well, what is the what was really the reality of COVID? Because we read everything. Um, about it in Myanmar, but really, what was it in, in at the scale of a, of a village? How, how did it uh, um, happen? Um, so I'm not. Sure. I don't know if we are doing better, but what we are doing is for sure um, long term fact check by people who have been professionally trained to be journalists on one issue on one. Um, Place so this is why what we offer uh, hyper localized um, checked information that will be uh, constantly um, updated um, and uh, I think maybe maybe now it's difficult to to have people read uh, this long report and stuff but I, I think it will have some uh, some use to document all of this properly uh, and in details. Uh, um, and uh, on, on the side, we, we understand the fact that um, how it works, no? the, the landscape of information and uh, the social media, that people really click on image and videos and videos not more than two minutes. And so we create also this uh, on the website, we create these videos, we have this post, uh, we have this picture, because we simply know that it's much more easily uh, shareable and that people stop at it and that Facebook algorithm will uh, always uh, promote image particularly and then video. Um, so you, you, I think you have to... To juggle all these things, uh, doing very quality, good quality, long-term content that will be useful, we hope, to the to the society or, or at least policy making uh, at large, but also uh, keeping the interest uh, on a day by day basis by this viral, easy to share, direct testimony uh, on social media. So yeah, I think we have to to play the game while fighting it and um, still um, still continuing um, every day because there is no other way it's it's also a question of respect from uh, for the the dozens of local media house in Myanmar who have been forced underground into hiding and they still continue to every day to report. They call people in Myanmar, they write exclusive uh, local interviews and uh, if they still do it, uh, there is no reason um, we should not do it from the 
um, safety of Bangkok. So we, the team is coordinating here, but actually uh, most of the team is in uh, is in Myanmar, and uh, they need to be yeah to be supported and to be able to continue to do this this work because as for the women factory worker i told you about to become a, a researcher on workers rights i think for for our um, for the members of our team and especially the the journalists who are pretty young yeah? they just went out of school when it happened the, the coup and the covid so um it's it's at this moment that they need to be supported because it's the it's the it's the first entrance into the job in at the hardest of times. I, I always said if this happened to me at twenty years old uh, and there is a, a coup uh, in my country just after I finish my journalist school and that I'm in the front line of people who are uh, targeted because of their job, I really w- would have like some. Um, um, some support network. Um, mm. So yeah, <laughs> this is what we're doing because this it's 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 now that they need uh, um, the 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 message to to be um, emphasized and uh, as if at least we can provide some yeah logistical help. That's great because it's really really necessary that. Uh, this um, this Myanmar media can still function because it is the is the only thing we we have now to know what's happening in the in the country. Most of us uh, foreign journalists in Southeast Asia have not been able to enter Myanmar uh, since COVID even, uh, and then the coup. It's completely impossible. So the source of information is me and our journalist who are in a really difficult situation. So that's the, um, the that's them. That's them who have to be uh, supported because they, they are the only source for all of us to know what's, uh, what's happening in the country now. Yeah. And I mean, it, it it's sort of easier to think about the, the parallel to the medical students. You know, there are a lot of medical students mm. who are in university now that COVID has hit. And they suddenly have to, before even finishing their medical degrees, they're being recruited by governments as like, okay, you have to go do testing, you have to do, um, you know, PCR, you have to do vaccines, you know, you have to be Mm. on the front lines of a medical Mm. crisis, because Mm. this is the situation that we have. And thinking about their difficulties gives us a, a reference point to understanding the difficulties of, of fresh journalist students, who don't have the training, and they don't have the experience yet. And they're thrown into this situation. Yeah. And you yeah. talk about the training, and you talk you talk about you know the, the cybersecurity. You talk about the VPNs. You talk about mm. all of these different elements that we now see as very important, very relevant. But you also mentioned before the algorithm, uh, mm. Facebook algorithm, YouTube algorithm, which is Google runs YouTube. These are notorious, and one of the notorious elements of the algorithms is that they reinforce information that people already expose themselves to and they don't tend to want to share information which is seen as upsetting or negative do you do you think that there's been a role of the algorithms in in working against spreading the information about myanmar oh that's um that's a huge pot we just opened uh, <laughs> i know it's a, tr- it's a tricky one i'm sorry <laughs> No, 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 because actually it's something we, 
we research pretty deeply. Our first report is about this, no? the, the world oh, wow. the, the war that has moved, uh, that will be published very soon in a few days, and uh, the war that has moved online, the war of information. Mm. And um, so there, there is different aspects to, to that. Um, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, our platform uh, at the beginning of the coup actually uh, have been um, uh, point, uh, fingered for the inability to um, say, regulate um, military propaganda content. So you might remember mm. that at the, the beginning when people went in the street, you had the soldiers who went online and made videos saying... Uh, if you still continue, you will take one in the head and I will shoot with a real bullet. And so there was all this threatening videos mm. which were spreading. Um, and the platforms took uh, weeks or months for some of them to do anything about it. So there is this responsibility um, of the, for many reasons. Huh? They don't have the, the human resources or the interest or the sense of responsibility or the reactivity. Or the, so this is all the, the, the reason are there. But then um, so you, you talk about the, the bubbles and this is a, a huge problem because now you have, um, you have basically pro-democracy and pro-military camp who are fighting uh, online too with different accounts, uh, so you have uh, you have actually uh, pro-military uh, civilian or soldiers who are creating Facebook accounts with a framing of the CDM or NUG or PDF to be able to make pro-democracy friends based on the profile similar profile picture. And to see what they say, and then you have the I heard that some. Uh, um, some PDF, some CDM people do the reverse. They befriend uh, military uh, soldiers who have a Buddha or the word Tatmado or something in the profile picture or name. And then it's just this this insane game of of spying on each other. Um, So these are the cracks in the bubble because people who don't do this are only exposed by the nature of this platform and and your interest, how they judge your opinions and the interest. You will be only exposed to to what you already agree with um, most of the time. So this is the real problem of... uh, um, of Facebook still being the main source of information in Myanmar, we had a, we made a small survey of um, our own scale. It's nothing scientific, but just on an anecdotal level, uh, we asked 100 people inside Myanmar in September 2021 uh, from very div- different background. A casual survey. Um, what do you use on, on, on your smartphone? And 80% of the people still only use Facebook for everything, for talking, for, mis- um, for sharing information, for reading information, for buying stuff. Um, <clears throat> so it's just uh, you have a, an immense um, role of Facebook in Myanmar that uh, I can explain more, but um, I'm sure people familiar with Myanmar know, know why. No, you know, when in 2000, from 10 to 15, you buy a, a smartphone in Yangon, and Facebook is already um, set up on it. 
because Facebook had some deals with Telenor and, and some telecom operators, to have the app uh, set up straight on the on the thing. And as we know, the, the digital literacy was uh, non-existent uh, in Myanmar because uh, they, uh, it was jumped from not even a landline suddenly to to everybody a smartphone. Um, so yeah, Facebook became the internet and is still the internet despite all the disruption of the last uh, months. Uh, so you have this, you have this big war, you have uh, Facebook who, uh, who is much too important in a, as a foreign company in this, uh, in this country uh, without the, the education that go with it or without the human resources in the Facebook team to take down the, the, the things in time that should be taken down. Um, as we, uh, we 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 know that there is this court case now uh, at Facebook at the Washington court at the moment um, brought out by um, by CSO representing the Rohingya community because they could prove that uh, Facebook had a really inflammatory role in in what happened in Rakhine State from 2016 onwards. Um, and this has been magnified, obviously, since the coup, because now um, all sorts of other communities are are being targeted in the same way by this really um, inflammatory fake news post. Um, but but yeah, our conclusion is that you 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 cannot you you can ask them to have to take more responsibility, but at the end. Um, it's it's the role of a society to build his own media sources and his own critical thinking and his own education, so the people are less vulnerable uh, to such um, money making, profit platform functioning. <laughs> Um, so if we have something else to offer to people in terms of information, uh, then Facebook lose a bit of uh, its uh, its value. But uh, this only works if media are properly funded and able to to operate in the country. And, and we know that in Myanmar, even before the coup, access to information and uh, to resources from your Myanmar media was already very scarce. Um, so you cannot fight free Facebook uh, with your little newspaper, but then in a in a uh, in a prospective um, future with a with a hopefully return of the rule of law, and uh, and then then you can have some kind of support system, a proper press council uh, who looks at ethics and deontology and. Uh, and the uh, relationship with money and with interview partners. And, and there is actually a lot of potential and there is a lot of thinking, uh, people who think about it um, in Myanmar. And I think if the, even in exile, it would actually be possible for, for Myanmar media to, to kind of uh, gather in a, in a in a council and to agree on some rules because we we saw that the the, the PDF soldiers they have rules of behavior no so um, why not the Myanmar media in exile could agree on some um, on some rules and this would then increase the confidence of the public who then be less vulnerable to um, to as I said all this uh, monopoly of information by uh, by free platforms. Uh, 
So yeah, it's a it's a big big question, but they are solution, no? They they are solution, and uh, like for for the rest, Myanmar is just as experienced such shell shocks in every aspect in the last months, be it on the yeah on this the war information, the economy, the the the, the conflict, the disease, and and now is is this very horrible time where everything pops up at the surface and now for all to see we can really see what are the issue really clearly and um, and um, yeah I think the answer are, are clear for all and within <laughs> strengthen strengthen the independent media is the only way to <clears throat> to fight um, disinformation I would say and make sure that the the state the company uh, cannot have any influence on it. Yeah. <clears throat> so I mean, that's a it's a good goal to have. It's just a very difficult, very high bar to reach. So, as you say, um, Facebook is automatic in Myanmar, and this this is in large part because of the absence of net neutrality. Um, so I, I think, as a side note, for many people in the West, because net neutrality was a was a talking point uh, in the West a few years ago. There were talks of removing net neutrality. And people were talking and they're saying, well, you know, maybe it's a good thing, maybe it's a bad thing. We don't know what would happen. We do. We can look at Myanmar and we can look at the way that Facebook cornered the market. And because Facebook data were free or were much, much cheaper than normal internet data, they were able to dominate all information services, trade, business, everything, job interviews are done on Facebook. Facebook is is everything in Myanmar. Because the videos or the posts we're talking about are very small, it allows people to make lots of them. Like a journalist writing a 5,000-word essay is researching for weeks, months, writing, rewriting, editing. Uh, one person on TikTok posting a 30-second video alleging that a crime happened with no evidence takes 30 seconds and then he can make another one and another one and another one and only one of those videos has to be viral all of the other ones can fail it doesn't matter so they're flooding the market so what i'm asking is even if the the media groups unify and they come up with rules and they have standards and professional principles can they compete with these these fake news factories that we see on TikTok and Instagram and even YouTube, even Facebook? Um, I, I don't think they will compete in the sense of it might not be... Um, it can be the same audience, uh, but I don't think the idea is to, is to compete. We are simply doing different... Um, jobs in different shapes and I'm not judging the micro content uh, uh, strategy of people who do two minutes video and stuff when it's fake that is the problem it's not the format the problem is the content no uh, so I think that um, if, if, if someone writes a 5,000 words about uh, a really important investigation that is of public relevance I think he will find its readers because you have many people um, in Myanmar or interested by Myanmar who wants to read details. So I just think it's a different audience. It's not mostly competition, but uh, 
how I could see maybe some way forward, um, actually not only for the young generation, but for uh, any generation, it's, it's some, yeah, digital media training in the sense of how we consume information. I know that in France, I don't know in many countries you have this now, in, in France at one point in our schooling, um, we, we had a, a lesson of actually what's the what's the media landscape in France, what are the main newspapers, what are the political lines, and they tell you at, yeah, at 15, 16, okay, this is uh, from the right, this is from the left, this is conservative, this is economic, so you know actually where you're going, you, you know who is behind, and I think this is really helpful because diversity should be there, um, but people should know where they put their feet in, um, and uh, this can also be done by by journalists themselves or by activists. Uh, you have all this this map in Europe, in France. We have all these maps of uh, who owns which media, what kind of consequence it has. Um, and this is all information that is findable. The only thing is to bring it to people in a a viral way so it can be via tweets I also think that journalists should think a bit more about being more uh, that you can relate more, reach more um, change a bit the format not do this heavy academic long uh, writing, we should also do it for some uh, issue for some reason but it should be balanced with this easy to consume easy to read uh, very valuable information so yeah for example who owns the media is good <laughs> and uh, is it uh, is it a journalist behind because some of my Burmese um, uh, colleague um, journalists they, they tell me they saw all this new kind of publication where it's not really journalists behind, it's simply pro-military people who set up a, a paper to, to occupy the market now uh, that the independent media gone and cannot function anymore. So it's like, it's do not leave the floor, no? It's, it's really important that we don't leave the floor to mm. only um, pro-military uh, information that we call uh, propaganda. But... Uh, um, yeah, be, be there because they are there too. <laughs> and if there is a void, it will be filled up by someone, no? So if there is a void, uh, Facebook filled the void, no? At the beginning of Myanmar, and then some media managed to, to fight back to exist. Uh, we have this incredible publication in Myanmar from local to, to English speaking. Um, were really doing great work and now they are basically unable to, to function properly. They still do, but they don't have the, yeah, the resource, the safety, the, um, but the military have. Uh, so they are producing their own uh, information channel and flooding. Uh, and this is really important to, to counteract this in any way. Uh, you can simply by factually... Uh, verified uh, information that you put out there because I don't think we will win against there is no victory against Facebook or anything the, the only mm -hmm. important thing is is not to leave the floor to to offer different uh, things to people in the hope that uh, that the fact checked um, 
non-inflammatory content will reach the most people uh, and cut the influence somehow of of content who is doing the opposite um, to to fuel tensions and which is simply not true. Um, yeah, so I think that's a big field, but it's totally. Uh, Possible, possible. You have the you have to, you have the people who can do this in Myanmar. These workshops. Uh, you have uh, you have the thinking. You have the um, it's it's possible even now uh, using online actually to um, to talk about this because you have as I said you have course about everything now uh, online. You can you can take course. You can pursue your studies. Uh, you have all these cybersecurity safety clinics. You have all these tips. Um, so it's simply playing the game of the algorithm to reach as many people as you can with with factually um, relevant information. This I would say is the is the game. And for this, we need Myanmar um, Media House to be uh, to be able to to work and to have the resources to. Um, to do it, uh, yeah. So this is why uh, a big part also of the of our website is is providing a a straightforward platform for um, for donation because this is the the only way uh, to continue the information being produced. <clears throat> and uh, and certainly will make it uh, easier for people who want to donate to find those donation links and make sure that the people who need those goods can and education yeah. can receive them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I want to segue though, just on this topic of getting the information out there. You mentioned at the very beginning that you are uh, your team is working on a documentary. Mm. Uh, can you tell us anything about that? Um, so this is um, so our team, as I said, is made mainly of photographer, journalist, and then uh, filmmaker and artist. So um, we have a, a team of filmmakers uh, who filmed in Yangon and current state for close to four months after the coup, four to five months after the coup. And all the footage has been um, um, saved. So it's, it's, it's about people in the street, but it's also about, the, about their own experience of uh, suddenly um, the, how their personal experience of being filmmaker in Myanmar was completely, um, um, yeah, changed, <laughs> traumatized, brutalized um, by, by the coup. And then they had to completely change their way of working, their way of living, they now in hiding. Um, so all the the footage was um, sent to us and saved. And uh, I said, we we are on the run. We have only this. Can we? And you do something with it. So um, um, Andy from our team, who is the um, who is responsible for the video, is working on making the most compelling uh, documentary can uh, based on this footage so it will be um, yeah obviously credited to the to the filmmakers in Myanmar but they simply don't have the the time or the possibility right now to to put it together themselves so um, we are just helping in this way uh, to to shape it but this will be their story so it will be um, a documentary that we hope to to release in a few weeks about uh, the the personal experience of um, 
covering the four to five first months of uh, of the coup close very close to the front line of people protesting um so yeah we already have um, a series of other videos so this is this will be 20 25 minutes um and um before this we produce other kind of small films um it's 2 minutes 30 we have a series of three for now but we we aim for for 10 uh, so it's audios that are sent uh, to me so uh, uh, i just wanted to mention before when you talk about safety that actually i'm the i'm the only one who knows uh, who the people are behind even the people in the in the team don't know so the safety is also there that i'm the only person who know who they are so this is why they send to to me the audio uh, we talk on telegram and they send me audio about uh, yeah what is it how is it the, the life uh, in yangon when you cover protests when you have to hide in a house for three days but all the, these things that we heard vaguely on in uh, in in some um, media at the beginning but um, it's still happening so um, we are doing this um, this video based on audios uh, plus covered with video and image uh, that were filmed from the street by our team. So this is episodes of uh, two minutes thirty, and uh, from really from the from the ground, uh, he talks when he's on the street, and uh, so we want to to show the the direct experience also. Of, of people, but also what it is to, to be a, a journalist, a filmmaker right now in Myanmar, where, where the impact of the creative community. Um, so also in, a, in the hope that all the creative community in the, in the world will, will emphasize with them and, and make some kind of um, yeah, collaboration, support. We are trying to, to have some international media um, to to broadcast uh, our videos too. It's because it's it's uh, always about spreading the word, no? Spreading the word, showing the incredible work to the most people possible and providing the found so they can continue to do this and, and provide this public service for the society uh, to circle our conversation back. Uh, journalism in the in the ideal and um, is is what we are supposed to do we provide the information the society needs to make um, informed political and daily life choices and uh, obviously a free press is um, a functioning press is totally necessary the functioning of a, of a society and um, now the situation Myanmar is in now, uh, the need for fair and verified information is even bigger than any times now of the of the country. So um, this is the this is the, the the big picture we are trying to at the end. It's providing public information to people inside Myanmar, but also outside Myanmar who want to support and. And give them the maybe the the pathways to do it the best by giving the most details. Um, and yeah, this is only possible if if then people know 
the value of uh, journalism at the moment in Myanmar, and this is what we are trying to to show in many different ways with our website and our, and our work. Um, so I think I will just um, add something, if it's fine, uh, um, that um, um, some of the so some of our team, um, I would say half of the people, uh, have been subjected to to really um, hard things in the course of their jobs. So some of them have been um, injured in the in the protest, uh, shot at by police because they were taking pictures. They had to leave the house straight away to to go into hiding into another state because they were identified as a as journalists in a pretty small, small place where there is not many. Um, some of them were attacked by thugs. You have, also, you have also thugs hired by the regime at the moment to, uh, not at the moment actually, it was during the protest in February, March in Yangon, where they would simply beat up and steal everything from... Uh, from young people in the street who look like student protesters. And so um, one of our journalists was victim of this, um, got aggressed by five men. They took everything from him, the laptop, the camera, the phone, the paper. So um, I, I, I'm saying this to, to say that it's not, um, it's, yeah, it's not charity what we're doing. We're giving, uh, we're paying people when they produce um, the content and send it and publish it. Uh, but also the needs are, are just um, immense and go beyond the professional in the sense of it's, it's just so dangerous to be a, a journalist at the moment in Myanmar. And, and so this is why this, um, this money goes in, in very different ways, no? To, to help them secure... Um, um, to help them secure a safe pass- passage to another state, to help them um, buy another phone or a, or a camera when it has been taken or stolen from them. Uh, it's really the, this this war situation, um, and uh, and we have also um, a, a colleague who was not part of the of the collective, but colleagues of of colleagues who have been. Uh, Arrested and she's in in jail now for four months, uh, um, and uh, so a mother was relying on her income. So there is also the need to support the families of journalists who cannot work anymore. So what I'm saying is that it it really goes um, a long long way. Um, when we provide uh, the basic resources, like with with one laptop, you can have ten people working on it and writing stories and. Um, so we we are really trying to to cover every aspect of of their basic needs because if this is not covered, they cannot uh, work and uh, really want to attract the attention of the um, of the fact that uh, that Myanmar is now uh, in the top three of con- of the most dangerous countries for for journalists, no, after China and Iran. <laughs> so it's um, yeah. Just want to say it's absolutely critical for all the reason I exposed before <clears throat> that this uh, these people are supported uh, because their work has a has a huge influence in their own community and society. 
and we provide uh, different ways. You can uh, you can offer yourself as a mentor if you have a, a specific uh, skills, if you are a photojournalist, if you are environmental um, defender, if you have um, a specific skill, we are happy to set up sessions uh, of um, of training and conferences where you can talk to, to our team for one, two hours and, and sharing what you know to, to help continuing the training. And um, yeah, and otherwise the the donation I used for the um, for the VPN for the material for English lessons. So all of them have been enrolled in a daily um, English lesson course that we created especially for journalists. So it's learning English via media uh, with two certified uh, English teacher here, one Burmese and one English and. Uh, and uh, yeah, for people who are in real, real danger, we had to um, to make sure they were they were settled in another place and uh, to pay for for passports and to pay for vaccine and to pay for 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 these things so they can function. So um, I hope some people will come visit our site. We are on all the the um, the social media to to fight back on their own uh, <laughs> ground so we on facebook twitter and tiktok and visual rebellion myanmar and uh, yeah i hope you can appreciate and support our whole work somehow <clears throat> Hey, I have to tell you something. Yesterday, my house, uh, I mean, my real house, uh, the police and soldiers was came to find my house. Uh, after they checking around my house uh, one hour, uh, they leave. They don't know anything. They just want to arrest and, and kill. They just want to do that. They don't care who you are but it's really lucky for me i i was there at home they was come to buy come to my house and find the thing uh, about the protest my family was really they was really scared about that but i was through everything about that i was I was hiding. I was hiding my my front house. It was really lucky for me. Well, that was so close. It was maybe that they would give the information to the police. Cause they was come to the house the right in time. We have we we was they come uh, come back our home for a long time. Uh, at least three men or four men. But the next three or five days, I will be go another place to live. No, uh, I should live one place for a while. Uh, I was hide my identity to everyone. It was better for me.
So we're now fortunate enough to be joined by one of the photojournalists from Visual Rebellion who's going to talk to us about his role in the photography and the research elements of the overall project. But before we get too deep into that, let me just let you introduce yourself. Can you tell us briefly what it is that you do at Visual Rebellion? Yeah, uh, uh, I'm just a journalist who has just graduated. When I finished high school, I did not want to go to university or college. I did not want to be a student animal, maybe because I hated the education system. I was looking for some non-government institute or college or somewhere I could learn something for a, a profession. Fortunately, uh, one of my brothers worked in media teaching, so he told me that I might be able to find a profession in this sector. And then I chose to attend the one-year diploma course in multimedia journalism. This is how I came into this journalism world. And yeah, uh, after this, Law La was a trainer in Yangon back in 2019. So we know each other since then. And after uh, I was doing my job, uh, after the coup, I was doing my job after the coup. Yeah, you know what? My job, journalism, going to the protest, taking pictures, making interviews, and I posted some pictures of mine on social media. And Laura Siegel, who is a French journalist, saw my pictures, and she wanted to produce some story together with me and my other friends, who are also journalists for a French news company. Yeah, I do not work for a local media yet. And I was not a journalist at the time of the coup, but, but I was just doing my job under military dictatorship. Uh, Laura saw my pictures on social media and she wanted to produce together with us. That's how Bashir Rebellion Myanmar founded, yeah. So at the at the time of the coup, so that was almost one year ago, uh, how much media experience, how much media training did you have? <clears throat> uh, we we have just around 10 journalists on this platform, Bishwar Rebellion Myanmar, or then a young reporter like me who has just graduated from journalism school. We have, uh, we have just, like I said, we are young and inexperienced journalists. Oh, yes. As you know, under the military dictatorship, it is very difficult to do our job. Journalism, it is very strict. They arrested and even brutally killed everyone who was against them. And it is very easy for them to arrest everyone, no matter what you do, no matter what you say. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you are an innocent civilian or not, but you are a journalist. You are almost ashamed to be arrested. Uh, let me let me let me talk about my experience reporting under military dictatorship. Yeah, it was the hardest part when I was writing an article about Chuck oil refinery. When I went to Chuck, I was inter interrogated. They asked me what I was coming for, what I was going to do in the town. 
And if only I take my, if only I took my camera with me, I would definitely be arrested. But I went to there just with a phone to take picture, uh, to record some interview, and they check, they check on on people my age more because they think people my age might be PDF people different forces. Yeah, I I took the most rig. I took much time to work on it. I say all the facts. I could go in person and on the internet as well. I did it in a very difficult situation. I went to a town quite far from my place to talk and know more about the local. It was the hardest story I work on because the soldiers prison all around the factory and on the road, but stayed the best one, I guess. Yep. Wow. And so, when did you when did you begin? Covering、uh, the coup, did you start on the very first day, or was it a few weeks before you began to start、uh, documenting? Yeah, I started a few weeks,、uh, a few days after the coup because there are、uh, there were so many protests in our town after the after just、uh, just after the coup. So I had to go to the protest to the demonstration. And took pictures, make interview, yeah. So, and and were they peaceful protests when you when you started doing your reporting? Were the protests relatively peaceful? Yeah, in the first day of demonstration, yeah, it was peaceful. But、uh, starting from March three, they started、uh, shoot with live ammunition or、mm, like tear gases, and and then they could. They kill a student who is also nineteen, an engineering student. He fell to the ground.、Uh, I saw it with my own eyes.、Uh, and then the next day, there were there were no protests anymore since since that day. Yeah. Wow, and so. What I'm wondering is, has anyone else reached out to you other than than Visual Rebellion? Have you? Uh, being contacted, or have you had the opportunity to work with large media organizations to spread awareness? No, I ha- I I haven't been. Yeah, I I have I have not I have not in local media yet. I we we have contacts from all over the country,、uh, all over the country, Upper Burma, Central Burma, and including Yangon. All of them graduated from journalism school together with me in the same year.、Uh, all of them are very talented. They have a diploma in multimedia journalism, so they can write and produce text story, and they can also take very good pictures because they understand and be proficient in photojournalism. We produce documentary as well, and we have learned everything about journalism. So, I believe that Visual Rebellion can reach at a certain level in a short time, if there's a、uh, uh, enough support. Okay, I mean that's definitely important for us to to achieve because, yeah, as I say and as you're aware, many of the international media organizations are just not. Focused on Myanmar, many of them have left Myanmar,、uh, and the few that do focus on Myanmar issues still,、uh, they desperately need and they rely on the Myanmar journalists, the young Myanmar journalists like you, 
who get the photos and who get the images and who reveal those stories. And so that's something that I want to ask you about. As, as a journalist covering the coup, covering the dictatorship, covering the crisis, really, what are the sorts of, of things that you've seen? What are the sorts of things that you've written about and photographed? So uh, I'm going to tell what I saw after the coup and what I have done on Bishop Rebellion. Yep, so so mostly I'm a photojournalist, so I took pictures. <laughs> I took so many pictures, uh, not, not in the video that, that much. I don't do video that much, so I took mostly pictures and a right story uh, about mostly about the protest demonstration. As I said, uh, on, on, on the third of March, uh, one student, an engineering student, was killed in front of my eye, and I saw it with my own eyes. He is my friend in high school. On, on March 3, one person was killed during the protest. He is my friend, an engineering student, and I saw it with my own eyes. And in that day, at least 10 were injured, and I was the only reporter there. I was the, the only one who with the camera, I took picture of the injury people. Uh, they have been, that they have been no protect since that day and no, no major shooting has been taken. Yeah, that's all. So what we have been seeing over the last six, seven months is that interest internationally in Myanmar has been dropping. Not many people are engaging with the crisis. Do you as a journalist have any ideas what we can do to increase uh, engagement, to increase interest in the international community? Myanmar has been under uh, dictatorship for more than 16 years. So these are no longer special. This is not a new coup. So it is not surprising that the international community has been decreasing interest. Uh, so in addition, no one, no, no one has been able to do anything about the past killing of ethnic groups by, by the military in Burma. So international interest in Burma may be decreasing because there are more important issues uh, than Myanmar. And no one could do anything on on the case like Rohingya people in Rakhine State. So I think it is not uh, uh, it is not surprising they they lose interest on us. But what can we do to regain interest? Because the international community's pressure is very important. It, it's important to stop companies from giving money to the junta. It's important to pressure governments to sanction and take action. So it's very important that people know what is happening and that journalists can inform them. But how can we make people interested? I think the only way to regain interest on Myanmar uh, is, is the responsibility of national unity government especially I think so uh, but 
Many young people in Myanmar, including some PDF PDF soldiers, they do not or they do not believe in energy. I don't know why they just do not believe. <laughs> so uh, I, I think we have to fight. We have to fight uh, for ourselves, and and I think we they many PDF they do not rely on international community. They are doing their job, whether they do not care about X or not. So, I don't know. I don't know how to regain the interest. Interesting. So then, in that case, if you're saying it, it is the responsibility of the national unity government. Um, what? Uh, so, what function? What role do you see for journalism in uh, in helping to to end this crisis? Uh, we have to do our job of journalism like usual and uh, and the military dictatorship it is not inevitable that you do not want to be a journalist anymore we must try to have our country as much as we can with what we have learned so uh, we will continue to work and the military dictator disappear until the military dictator disappear and it will it will help us anyway but like what role do you think this has so why how do you think journalism will help to end the dictatorship journalism will help will help to to end the dictatorship of course it is all about letting the war know about what's going what's going uh what's happening in Myanmar without journalism the war would be ignorant. Journalism is important because because it gives current and relevant information and news to the public, and and of course to regain the interest again from the international community. And our goal is to make to 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 continue covering what is happening in Myanmar, in town location or so. Well, there are not many journalists left anymore bring to the world professional images, videos and research by local trained reporters, provide a platform while donations are easy to make so we can continue supporting the production's uh, content. And so you talk about it, it's difficult for to find journalists. Many of the journalists have left. We've seen a rise in amateur journalists. So normal people, they have a camera phone, they take photo, they take video. Do you think there is a, a difference in what a professional journalist can do and what an amateur journalist can do. Yeah, uh, uh, there is so much different between amateur journalists and the professional journalists because we, we have now so many journalists called citizen journalists. Uh, they are like normal people. They just took picture, they just take pictures and posted on the internet or somewhere. Yeah, they are just normal people like us, uh, but they are not trained journalists. And we have so many kinds of journalists under uh, the military coup. Uh, they, so, they're so much different, obviously.
We want to present a special opportunity for donors who are committed to our show. While we want to stress that we greatly appreciate donations of any size, larger donations, of course, are particularly helpful. For that reason, we're encouraging donors with means to consider sponsoring a full episode for a one-time donation of $350 or more. Donations in this category can include a dedication, if you'd like, to a person or organization, as well as a quotation or expression. Or your generous donation can be anonymous. The choice is yours. In either case, it would give you the satisfaction of knowing that you enabled at least one more episode to be produced for the benefit of the people of Myanmar who have suffered so much at the hands of the military. If you would like to join in our mission to support those in Myanmar who are being impacted by the military coup, we welcome your contribution in any form, currency, or transfer method. Your donation will go to support a wide range of humanitarian missions, aiding those local communities who need it most. Donations are directed to such causes as the Civil Disobedience Movement, CDM, Families of Deceased Victims, Internally Displaced Person, IDP Camps, Food for Impoverished Communities, Military Defection Campaigns, Undercover Journalists, Monasteries and Nunneries, Education Initiatives, the Purchasing of Protective Equipment and Medical Supplies, COVID Relief, and much more. We also make sure that our donation fund supports a diverse range of religious and ethnic groups across the country. We invite you to visit our website to learn more about past projects as well as upcoming needs. You can give a general donation or earmark your contribution for a specific activity or project you would like to support, perhaps even something you heard about in this very episode. All of this humanitarian aid work is carried out by our nonprofit mission, Better Burma. Any donation you give on our Insight Myanmar website is directed towards this fund. Alternatively, you can also visit the Better Burma website, betterburma.org. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-B-U-R-M-A dot org and donate directly there. In either case, your donation goes to the same cause and both websites accept credit cards. You can also give via PayPal by going to paypal.me slash betterburma. Additionally, we take donations through Patreon, Venmo, GoFundMe, and Cash App. Simply search Better Burma on each platform and you'll find our account. You can also visit either the Insight Myanmar or Better Burma websites for specific links to those respective accounts or email us at info at betterburma.org. If you'd like to give it another way, please contact us. Thank you so much for your kind consideration and support. Sorry for my labor Brian. As you know, it was not easy to communicate because this situation is not good. It was two weeks ago and now so many people were hit by a bomb. Uh, early last night, two or three bombs was exploded in the, in the city. Uh, I mean, I'm okay. At least I, I was alive, right? At least I was alive. I mean, I'm okay. I don't know how long we has had this situation. Every day, every day, I want thinking about my future. How long it take and how long we have to wait to end this 
sometime I was lost my ambition. Sometimes I depressed every day. We become harder and harder to live, to eat, to sleep. I have no idea how do I live in this country. Go live on the moon alone. But I'm trying to stay strong. If I'm pain and depressed and just think about, I'm okay. I must stay alive. At least I was not dead. I will not get hurt. I'm trying to motivate by my with that.